where God poses a question. It's initially really to Adam, maybe Adam and Eve both in some respects, but the question that he asks is he says, where are you? Where are you? Now, before we begin, let's take a moment to pray, and then we're going to introduce that theme of where we are, but we're going to introduce it with a theme or a video of children, little children, toddlers playing hide and seek. But before we begin, let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, thank you very much um, for loving us well. Thank you for your son, Jesus, who came to earth in order to live and to die for us that we might be rescued and redeemed and forgiven, Father, and brought back into a relationship with you. Father, I pray today um, that the, the words that you have given to us in Scripture, as well as the Holy Spirit, that through those both, you might call us back into a relationship with you, our good Father. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Any of you guys who have children, um, or maybe have babysat before, you know that those videos are not uncommon. That um, Part of the reason it's so funny is when you play hide-and-go-seek with a toddler, you uh, know that in their little two- and three-year-old brains, they think because you can't, or because they can't see you, sorry, because you can't, hold on one second, what am I trying to say here? <laughs> because if they can't see you, then you can't see them either. Somebody else has toddler brain this morning. Anyway, wow. Today we're going to be looking at a much less humorous story of hide and seek found in Genesis chapter 3. Follow along with me as I read verses 1 through 13 of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths and they heard the sound of God the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. And we're mostly familiar with this passage of scripture, I would imagine. And if you read these verses carefully, you'll see that there are five questions that are posed over the course of these 13 verses that we just read. The first question is posed by Satan to Eve. His question is presented with a faux curiosity that hides his actual intent of causing Eve to doubt God's trustworthiness or goodness to her. He wants her to, to begin to think, maybe God's holding out on me. He says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Just so you know, Satan still uses that tactic of seeding doubt about God's goodness to us to this very day, but that's not what today's sermon is about. The other four questions are asked by God and are directed either to Adam or to Eve 
The first one is this, who told you that you were naked? It's an interesting question that God asks Adam, and I do actually think it's a diagnostic question because the answer, of course, is that no one told Adam that he was naked. You can imagine Adam pondering that question in the wake of being cast out of the garden for years to come. Who told you that you were naked? The next question is, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? That's the next question that God asks of Adam. And I don't think that one is as much of a diagnostic question as much as it's probably an invitation to repentance. Instead of humbly repenting, however, Adam first blames Eve and then somewhat reluctantly admits that he has, an ind- he has indeed eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The final question that God asks is now to Eve. He says this, what is this that you have done? What is this that you've done? My guess is that this is not only a diagnostic question, but it's also an invitation to repentance. Like Adam moments before, instead of humbly repenting, Eve attempts to place blame elsewhere, this time on the servant. Then she acknowledges her own disobedience. As to the diagnostic element of this question, you can easily imagine God's question, what is this you have done, echoing through Eve's mind for years and years as she and Adam toil outside the garden and live under the curse of sin that their decision brought upon them and upon their world. Now, we could spend a lot of time discussing each of those questions, but today I want to focus on God's first question when he arrives in the garden. Of course, by this time, we know this story fairly well. Satan invades the garden, and he tempts Eve to distrust God's heart towards her. As I mentioned earlier, that's a battle that each of us still face every single day of our lives. Eve, of course, makes the faithful choice to eat the fruit, the passage lists three reasons for her disobedience. It says this, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. Adam makes his choice as well, although we're not told why, which I think has to be intentional. We're left to speculate. Regardless, Adam also eats the fruit and he and Eve immediately experience the consequences of their choice. Verse 7 says this, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, theologians debate exactly what this means. Some argue that it means that they experienced shame. Some say that they experienced the weight of guilt. Others argue that they now realize that they're vulnerable and that they're broken. Whatever it means, we know that it was a traumatic experience for both of them. They immediately cover themselves, and they immediately hide. And it's at this point in the story that God arrives in the garden. We read in verse 9, The Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Where are you? This interaction takes us back to that opening clip that we used a moment ago of little children hiding in plain sight. Of course, because God is omniscient, he knows exactly where Adam and Eve are. His question isn't for, their, for, for his sake, but rather it's for their sake and it's for ours as well. So let's look at this question, where are you? At one level, Adam's answer to this question should be very simple. They're hiding in the bushes. But at another level, the question and the answer are both incredibly profound. As I mentioned just a moment ago, since God is omniscient, this question can't be for his sake. He already knows where they are, and he knows exactly how they got there. That means that this question is ultimately for them. They need to realize 
where they are, and they need to realize how they got there. So where are Adam and Eve? They're hiding from one another, and they're hiding from God. Let's look again at verses 7, 8, and 10. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. And so again, we see here the, the first response there is that they're hiding, Adam and Eve are hiding from one another. The story of Adam and Eve's fall that we've been looking at is found in Genesis 3, but if we look for a moment back to Genesis chapter 2, we'll see how the story begins. It says this, verse 24 of Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and then this is speaking of Adam and Eve, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so what was supposed to be a relationship with deep physical and relational intimacy is now a relationship in which Adam and Eve are hiding from one another behind loincloths made of fig leaves. They're attempting to cover over the reality of who they have become, and they're experiencing a new emotion. They're experiencing fear. In 1960, psychologist David Winnicott coined the term the false self, which he defined as a defensive facade. In other words, it's this external thing you put forward to defend yourself. Earlier in the 20th century, Swiss psychologist Carl Jung used the term persona to describe the same concept. A helpful, helpful description is the following. The persona is formed during the years from 6 to 12 when most children first go out on their own to avoid unwanted entanglements or to promote wanted ones. In other words, there's an element of getting what you want and avoiding what you don't want. Both describe an external way of presenting oneself to the world, again, in order to get what you want and avoid what you don't want. The dilemma is that when the outward self is inconsistent with the inward self, we're practicing a form of relational dishonesty. 2,000 years before Young or Winnicott, Jesus discussed this idea of the persona or the false self, but he used the term hypocrite. In our modern culture, that wor word means somebody who's fake or false. But when Jesus first used the term, it actually referred to Greek actors or stage players, and so it had a technical term. In Matthew 6, Jesus uses this borrowed term three times. Follow along with me as I read some of these, uh, these moments. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. They're using this external self to try to get something. They want to be praised. It goes on to say this, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites. Again, people would have heard this as actors or stage players. For they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. In each instance, the hypocrite is gaining something by means of their false self, but in the process, they're losing something that is far more valuable. Then again, in Matthew 23, we see Jesus use this term again. He uses it throughout his ministry, but he says this in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, 
but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. This time, instead of trying to gain something, the hypocrites are trying to avoid something. They're trying to hide what is really inside them, death, decay, and sin. So God's question, where are you, should actually, should actually ring out to each of us. If we're honest with ourselves and with others, the answer is that we are hiding from one another as well. We're not that different from Adam and Eve. Some of us may hide behind big trucks or nice cars, behind muscles or tattoos or advanced degrees. Each of those can be an attempt to communicate strength and weight and worth, but often what we're really doing is trying to hide the fact that inside we feel weak, afraid, and that we don't really believe that we have what it takes to live in this world. Still others may hide inside of beautiful homes or behind expensive clothing or underneath makeup or plastic surgery. Each of those may be an attempt to be seen as beautiful or competent or valuable, but each of those ways may also reveal a deeper desperation to be loved, to be chosen, or to be protected. Each set of coping mechanisms, those coping mechanisms will grow out of fear, a fear of rejection, a fear of abandonment, a fear of being too much, or a fear of being too little. And each of those strategies, if we rely upon them primarily, if they're our our primary way of interacting in the world, each of those will ultimately cause us to sacrifice our deep desire for intimacy. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his uh, series of, or his book, The Four Loves, Eros will have naked bodies, friendship, naked personalities. In other words, uh, what real relationship thrives on is vulnerability. The intimacy that we deeply desire comes not from hiding, not from deceiving, but through being painfully vulnerable with one another. God's question should ring out to us, where are you? So Adam and Eve, at least, are hiding from one another, but there's more. What we see in this passage is that Adam and Eve are also hiding from God. Look at verses seven, eight, and 10. I read these earlier. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And then of course, God reaches out to Adam and Adam says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The narrator of the passage makes it clear that when Adam and Eve heard God walking in the garden, they hid themselves from him. It's really a a mournful verse. It's really a sad verse. You have to wonder how this response to God's arrival was different than it had been all those other times that he had arrived in the garden before they sinned. There had to be something massive lost there. I still remember what it was like to come home from work when our kids were little. As soon as I would pull up in my car, the kids would come running out of the house. They would be screaming, Daddy, Daddy. They'd be jumping around. They'd be hopping around. They'd slam into the car. And as soon as I got out, they would jump all over me, and they just wanted to wrestle and tell me all about their day. They were so excited. And then I noticed that after a few years, things changed a little bit. That glee dissipated. And then when I pulled up, nobody came out to greet me anymore. I would walk up to the back door and I would open up the door and I would walk in and instead of a raucous welcome in the driveway, I might get a grunt or I might get a hand wave from the couch or something like that. At least they didn't try to avoid me altogether, however. 
So back to the story of Adam and Eve. When the, what the narrator submits, Adam outright admits. When he does come out of hiding to stand before God, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid uh, because I was naked, and I hid myself. Adam acknowledges his fear of God. He even gives clarity as to why he was fearful. He says, I was fearful because I was naked. Here's what Tim Keller has to say about this concept of nakedness. In the Bible, just like walking is an idiom for something bigger than just walking, walking means to be in a relationship with someone. So nakedness is an idiom for something bigger than just being ashamed of being naked, that is physically and unclothed. Keller goes on to say, nakedness is a sense that there's something wrong with me, a sense of shame that I need to prove myself, I need to cover, I need to keep people from seeing who I am because they will reject me. Nakedness is a psychological dislocation, a lack of ease with who you are. When our relationship with God is severed, our relationship with ourselves is severed. That is to say, we really don't want to admit what's wrong with us. We really don't want to admit the worst about ourselves, Keller says. The one thing we don't want to believe is that we're utterly dependent upon God. That's the one thing we don't want. We want to think that we need God occasionally, or maybe not at all, but in our heart of hearts, we know that we're utterly dependent on God, and therefore we are in denial about who we truly are. That's where the shame comes from, and that's where the guilt comes from, and that's where this lack of, of ease at being able to admit who we are comes from. You see what Keller is getting at there. C.S. Lewis affirms this same sense of nakedness and vulnerability and shame and guilt and brokenness. He says this in Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis says, God is the only comfort. For those of us who have tried to find comfort in those things I mentioned earlier, the trucks, the tattoos, the muscles, the beauty, the, all those things, those things do not last. They cannot last. They are not enough to cover us. They are absolutely fig leaves that will rot away. C.S. Lewis says, God is the only comfort. But he's also the supreme terror the thing we most need, and the thing we most want to hide from. He is our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. Some people talk as if meeting the gaze of absolute goodness would be fun. They need to think again. They are still only playing with religion. Goodness is either the great safety or the great despair, according to the way you react to it, and we have reacted the wrong way. I've been in ministry now for 30 plus years, depending on how you measure it, and I can confidently say that each of us, whether we are unbelievers or believers, are still in the process of hiding from God. That's, again, part of the story of the prodigal son. Both the older and the younger brothers are avoiding God. They're just avoiding him, running from him in, in different ways. Some of us avoid actually encountering God through our good works. We offer them up to him, we offer our good works up to God in the hopes that he won't probe too deeply into our hearts and discover that we're actually utterly terrified of him and that we really don't trust him to be loving or good towards us, towards our wives, towards our children, to our friends, to our lives. Others of us keep God at arm's length more overtly by simply avoiding him entirely and denying that he exists at all. Either way, I believe that deep down that each and every one of us knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that God exists and that he is calling out to us just as he called out to Adam and to Eve. How we respond 
will make all the difference in the world. C.S. Lewis goes on to address our inevitable encounter with God in his book of essays, God in the Dock. He writes the following. In the twinkling of an eye, in a time too small to be measured, and in any place, all that seems to divide us from God can flee away, vanish, leaving us naked before him. Like the first man, like the only man, as if nothing but he and I existed. And since that contact cannot be avoided for long, and since it means either bliss or horror, the business of life is to learn to like it. That's the first and greatest commandment. So I suppose my challenge for each of you this morning is to hear God's voice calling out to you, where are you? Where are you? Like the Israelites thousands of years ago, you may be wandering in some desert because of your unbelief. Like Jonah, you may be sinking in the middle of a storm, emotionally drowning because you've been running away from God. Or like Elijah, you may have given up on God altogether because he didn't come through the way that you had expected him to. And frankly, maybe, maybe those are perfectly logical ways to respond to the inevitable sufferings of life. I mean, the world is filled with pain. It is filled with sorrow. It is filled with malevolence. But it's also very likely that your hiding and your running has actually made matters far worse, not only for you, but for those that you love the most. This morning, however, let me leave you with some hope. In this story, I want you to see something that should uh, give you some hope, and that's that God pursues his children, right? It's uh, appropriate that we should have a baptism this morning and be reminded by Jeff that this is the case for those of us who have been in a relationship with God and our children, that God pursues us. I suppose that God could have simply cut off Adam and Eve. He could have just said, you know what, let's start all over again, but he didn't. God came down into the garden, into the chaos, and he called out to his hiding children. If you are his wayward child, I believe that he's actually calling out to you this morning. I believe that he wants you to come out of wherever it is that you're hiding in order that you may walk with him, your good father. You also need to know that you're not alone in your hiding, and you're not alone in the battles of this life. In Genesis 3.15, just a couple of verses after what we read this morning, God promises to give someone who will fight alongside of us and ultimately fight for us. Just as God entered into the chaos of the garden, Jesus entered into the chaos of human history in order to rescue and to redeem us. Jesus is both our defense and our defender against the one who tempts and the one who accuses. Let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, we thank you for this question, where are you, where are we? I pray that it would actually ring out to us today, Father, that we would think um, seriously about where it is that we are, Father. Are we hiding from you through social media? Are we hiding from you through pleasures? Are we hiding from you through pain? Are we hiding from you through unhealthy relationships, Father, or through our goodness, Father? Whatever it is that we're hiding behind, Father, I pray that we would step out into the light of your Son, Jesus. Father, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be seen by you. I pray that we would be vulnerable to you and that as we are vulnerable to you, Father, that you might love us, Father, 
that you, like the, the father in the story, the prodigal son, might run out to us, throw your arms around us, and clothe us in the righteousness of your son, Jesus. It is in his name that we pray all these things today.